Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. So this piece of string walks into a bar. Bartender says, I'm sorry, we don't serve string here. So the string goes outside, messes up his hair, twists himself up like a pretzel, goes back inside and tries to order a drink. And the bartender says, wait a sec, aren't you that piece of string who just came in here? And he says, I'm afraid not. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from artist Miranda July. That'll help break the ice. Yes. Later, you'll get a vocabulary lesson from Michelle Williams, star of the new film, My Week with Marilyn. Plus, we'll also get a science lesson from Wu-Tang Clan's Jizza. Wow. Listening to this episode is like attending the coolest high school ever with your ears. But first... As at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these culture headlines. Grammy nominations were announced last night, and Kanye West leads the pack. The first issue of Action Comics has set a record for the most money paid for a single comic book. The National Board of Review has named Martin Scorsese's Hugo as best film of the year. Now for something you might not have heard, we turn to Jessica Cohen. She is the editor-in-chief of Jezebel.com, a women's culture website. Jessica, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, the networks just recently announced their mid-season replacements, and ABC has a very special show. It's really bad. Tell us more. The show is called Work It. and um, <laughs> Sounds I'm, good so far. It is basically Bosom Buddies. For, for those younger than us, perhaps, and maybe you want to describe what Bosom Buddies was. Uh, Bosom Buddies was a very, um, how do we say this, experimental sitcom mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, starring Tom Hanks, who miraculously recovered from being in the sitcom, <laughs> that was about two men who dressed as women in everyday life in order to get an apartment in New York. The landlord would only let women rent. Yeah, it was a women-only building, and right. so they dressed in drag constantly, right. but they liked the ladies. Right, and New York real estate being horrible, you know, it's a reasonable sacrifice to okay. make. Um, of course. You know, so, I, I would be whatever gender you want if it were for a good deal. Absolutely. So um, what, what's Work It? Yeah. Work It is Bosom Buddies Part 2, mm-hmm. except this is pegged to the man's session. Man's what? session is what exactly? Well, one, I'm not sure it exists, but <laughs> but it is a word that is thrown around incessantly. And it's the fact that men are having a harder time getting jobs now with the economy being what it is. So and wait, so wait this, the, the plot then is that guys try to get a woman's job because they can't get jobs as men? They dress as women in order to get jobs because men aren't getting jobs right now. This this smacks is untrue to me. <laughs> it's nonsense. It's total and complete nonsense. <laughs> because and, otherwise the concepts sound like right, two I'm, guys who are friends getting jobs dressing like women. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes w- sense. That would have been fine. But the man's session parts doesn't <laughs> That's seem... That's crazy. Good and, catch, Rico. I mean, the man's session doesn't even really <laughs> exist. If you look at the data, it's just men are having a harder time than they used to getting jobs. But women are still having a hard time. And maybe work it too could be uh, these guys talking about the sexual harassment, the lower salary, and all the other stuff that maybe comes with being a woman? Um, probably not. This is ABC. <laughs> there is an incredibly stupid preview of the show that you can check out on YouTube, and uh, you'll be happy you did. All right. You can find a link to that on our website. It will complete you. <laughs> if you dare. Jessica Cohen, thanks for the small talk. Thank you. And now, time for cocktails. 
Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our famed history lesson with booze. Yes, first to the history part. This week back in 1972, the first smash hit video game was unveiled. Now the Gen Xers at your dinner party will remember this game fondly. Or they might just say whatever. <laughs> probably more likely they'll say whatever. Yeah. But even they probably won't know its origins. Thanks to Michelle Philippi, you're about to. The game that launched an industry was made for drunks. See, in 1971, a guy named Nolan Bushnell produced the first coin-operated video game. He and his engineer pals loved it, but average Joes couldn't figure out the complex rules. The game flopped. So a year later, when Bushnell founded a company called Atari, he told his engineer to design a game so simple you could play it tipsy. The result? Simple video ping pong, simply named Pong. Atari installed the prototype in a Silicon Valley bar. And within two weeks, fascinated customers had stuffed it so full of quarters, it broke. The rest is gaming history. Pong machines raked in cash across America. Competitors churned out imitations. Soon, there were more than 10,000 Pongs and Sons of Pongs. And when Atari made a version you could play on your living room TV, the home video gaming boom began. When he plays a game from Atari, have you played Atari today? Give a man an Atari game and he'll turn into a little boy. But don't worry, he'll be grown up enough to share it. So thanks to Pong, video games became big business. And in 1977, Atari's Nolan Bushnell made sure there were plenty of places to play them when he founded a chain of restaurants that featured Atari games. Chuck E. Cheese Pizza. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve along with it. I'm speaking with Johnny Raglan at Comstock Saloon in San Francisco, first cousin to Silicon Valley. Johnny, you heard the history. What cocktail does it inspire you to make? Well, I had to dig into the annals of cocktail history and found a cocktail from 1903. The ping pong cocktail. Perfect. Yay. So we're going back to the beginning of the 20th century to do a cocktail for the end. Yes. A combination of slow gin, creme de violette, and lemon juice all shaken together. Kind of an esoteric cocktail with hard to find ingredients. So the cocktail that I came up with is a little bit more 70s-esque. So this is a variation you're doing. Yep. Substituting for the creme de violette, drambouille, which is very popular in the 70s. And I call it the pong pong. Appropriate. Yeah. Squared. Uh, And I should say, actually, this drink is also informed by your personal experience, right? You had a pong home game in your youth, I understand. I used to have like an Activision set. My mom picked it up at a garage sale. So I know it was ancient and I should have kept it because it's probably worth a lot of money now. But that's the one game that I had on it was pong. It is amazing that at one time that game was considered entertaining. Yeah. Things were different in the 70s. But I mean, you'd say the same thing about cocktails in the 70s. You read the ingredients and it's just like, really? People drank a lot of that? But, uh, you know, whatever. (laughs) On Quaaludes, it's great. And Brendan, Pong was a little before my time. Okay. But I was awesome at Moon Patrol, I will say. Okay. And also I had the high score on Zaxxon at my local pizza joint for a while. (laughs) 
That is true. Wow, I was really good at the games um, going outside. Oh. And then there was this other game called playing with my friends. I've tried those. <laughs> there's, oh yeah. There's not enough action. You know, they're 3D though. It's like you're actually there. I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Ladies and gentlemen, you can escape to the virtual world of our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. This week, it's actor Barry Livingston. His new memoir is called The Importance of Being Ernie. Since his days as a child star in the 1950s, he has made a living playing small, colorful roles. He's here to list his favorite actors who did the same. Hi, this is Barry Livingston. You might remember me. I was Ernie on a show called My Three Sons. And then these two guys, they said Ernie was a second-hand kid. I'm not a second-hand kid. Hey, my Uncle Charlie? You're the finest little knothead I've ever seen. Hey, no kidding. I was a, a character actor as a kid. I'm a character actor today as an adult working in films like The Social Network. And I have a few character actors that uh, have always been some of my favorites I'd like to share with you. first person that really stood out as a character actor was Peter Lorre. And Peter Lorre might be best known from Casablanca, uh, but he was great in all of the old horror films. He and Vincent Price were like a team. And he kind of looked like a Boston Terrier, kind of had big bug eyes, big round cheeks. And, and he would always go, oh yes, oh boss, this is, this is not going to turn out well. He had some sort of Eastern Hungarian accent and man, he just, he blew me away. Okay, okay, Johnny, okay, we'll do it. But, but the quick way, huh? The quick twist like in London. No, doctor, I think this calls for something special. Perhaps the Melbourne method. <laughs> not the Melbourne method, please. Two hours. And, and then when it was all over, what? The fellow in London was just as dead as the fellow in Melbourne. There was a strange intensity, and it came from those strange eyes that he had. And he was very sympathetic, but kind of creepy and eerie. And I found that I could, as a kid, I could do an impression of him, which impressed all of my friends, was the first. I, I realized that I had some talent and led me to think maybe, you know, I could become an actor. Number two would be William Demarest for a number of reasons. I worked with him on My Three Sons. He played Uncle Charlie. But William Demarest was the epitome of the second banana. He was just had a great face, very thin lips, turned down at the, at the corners. And he was, all, he was always old. When he was young, he was old. He was always full of bluster and grinding and steamy. Kids are driving me crazy. And if you've ever seen any great movies like The Lady Eve, all of the Preston Sturgis films, he, he loved William Demarest. Morning. Have a dish of tea. I had my breakfast. Where I come from, we get up in the morning. Ah, uh, yes? Well, where did it get you, may I ask? Where did it get me? I'll tell you where Good it got morning, me. Good morning, sir. Fruit, cereal, bacon, and... Give me a spoonful of milk, a raw pigeon's egg, and four houseflies. If you can't catch any, I'll settle for a cockroach. I'll be on deck. And he was like that from day one. You know, I think he was... Might have even gotten one of the first Academy Award nominations for playing Al Jolson's manager in The Jazz Singer. And he looked old then, in 1927. So, yeah. I'd say last, but certainly not least, Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall is perhaps the the epitome of the character actor whose talent has no bounds. I mean, he's Boo Radley in Killing Mockingbird. He's 
the crazy guy, you know, the, the captain or whatever he was in Apocalypse Now, who's just walking among the bombs and, you know, barely flinching. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Smell! You know, that gasoline smell! The whole hill! Smells like... Victory. Someday this war's gonna end. Robert Duvall is a character actor that's elevated his his career into stardom. I think pretty early on I realized that wasn't going to be Cary Grant. I was cast as the goofy guy with buck teeth. I was best to accept it. And I found looking at character actors, they work a lot. They don't carry the burden of being a star. You know, if the movie flops, Brad Pitt gets the blame. The guest list from Barry Livingston, his new memoir is called The Importance of Being Ernie. And Brendan, you can catch him as a CIA agent in the upcoming Ben Affleck flick Argo or as a psychopath in the next Hostel movie. (laughs) So that's your your choice. Maybe you should develop some range there with his roles. I know. know. He's in danger of typecasting. (laughs) All right. We're going to take a break. Later, Rico literally sticks his head in a vat of vodka. Uh, A vat of some of the best vodka in the world. Thank you very much. Oh, okay. Well, that's okay then. Mm -hmm. And coming up, learn why Michelle Williams is still named Michelle Williams. There were some ideas early on that I should change it, but they all made me sound like a porn star. So I was like, hmm. We elaborate on that when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, sharpening the edge I'm preparing to give you. There are sparks everywhere. <laughs> in it here. is hot. Coming up, it's bright. McSweeney's writer Shirako Dunlap does some literary genre translations. But first, everyone, our guest of honor this week is actress Michelle Williams. Mm. She won Oscar nominations for her performances in Brokeback Mountain and Blue Valentine, received critical acclaim for her work in indie films like Wendy and Lucy. And Rico, do you remember where America was first introduced to her? Yes, a little television town called Dawson's Creek. That's right. Do you remember? We all grew up there. Currently, she's starring as Marilyn Monroe in the new film, My Week with Marilyn. And since she's in the midst of a press tour, when we spoke, I started by asking her one of our two standard questions, namely, what question are you tired of being asked? I don't know. They all seem, you know, they're pretty innocuous. I always try and like play a little game, like I really like words. And so I just try and think about how I can describe the same thing using different kind of adjectives about it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I can't wait to find out what adjectives you have for my basic questions. But unfortunately, I'm going to have to ask a few because our audience hasn't seen the film, although I have, and I really you enjoyed have, it. You have? You saw it? I did, yes. And um, the movie takes place in, in uh, kind of the early days of Hollywood, and you are a modern actress. Which world is more fun? Yeah, you know, I've thought quite a lot about that because I think that, you know, Marilyn's sort of her her... Now that I told you I was going to use fancy adjectives, look at me, look at me, get all (laughs) clammed up. Uh, You know, her deepest desire was to be taken seriously as an actress. But unfortunately, she lived in a time when she was a kind of pawn of a studio system. She wasn't um, she wasn't a free agent. She was a contract player. And so after a sort of understanding the frustration that that created for her and the prison that it created for her, I feel doubly lucky to be working today and to be to be a sort of gun for hire and to be allowed to go where I want, when I want, and for the characters that I want. As I understand it, you've always wanted to be an actress ever since you were a little girl. Well, first I wanted to be a 
boxer and then I wanted to be a, <laughs> a long distance truck driver wow. and then I wanted to be an actress. Why? Where did the boxing impulse come from? I don't know. Somebody was asking me about it earlier and I thought, gosh, I had some sort of a very dark vision of the way my life would go. Either I was going to be hit in the face or I was going to be destined to um, take to the open road yeah. and do a lot of speed or something, <laughs> drive through the night. I, I really don't See, know what, I don't... Your life's nothing like that, probably. I don't, well, there is actually a lot of speed. No, um, there, is, there is actually a lot of driving through the night. All right. Um, and you got to take some hits. All right. Well, that sounds like the public radio life I lead. <laughs> Um, here comes another question you've been asked. Is it harder or easier to play someone who's already existed? One thing that makes it easier is that you have, you have all this available material. You know, other characters that I've played, they exist somewhere between my imagination, the script, and the director. And that's an unreal world. Uh, but with Marilyn, I could have spent the next 10 years researching her. And when you can actually put your hands on physical material, there's something comforting about it. You know, I can actually feel myself preparing, understanding, and I, I took a lot of comfort in that. And with these other characters, it's all kind of in my head. Well, you know, your role in the film Blue Valentine, which you starred in last year, is such a contrast. Yeah. Um, in that film, you play a fairly normal young woman. Well, I think, I mean, I've always been drawn to characters like that, people that you feel like, you know, maybe they're sitting next to you in the movie theater or you ride with them on the subway or who are ordinary and who are, you know, infinitely relatable. Marilyn was extraordinary. Marilyn Monroe was a character that she played, and it was a, it was a result of years of training, study. And so what I realized is that there's a, there's a human being underneath. You mentioned the uh, character that Marilyn played. Is that tempting to do as a public figure? Oh, putting on a facade, you mean? Yeah, to have a, you know, kind of different face for the world. Yeah, I have actually, I, I feel split on the subject. I've kind of always wished that I had a different name, like I'd taken on a <laughs> pseudonym, because it would feel like a kind of armor somehow. So whatever got thrown your way, positive or negative, it somehow wouldn't stick to you because it wouldn't actually be you. That's interesting. Um, so I've always kind of, I've always envied people that have had that. But what would run in contrast is to that is that, you know, the biggest work of my life is to have a happy life and to have a long life and a healthy life. And that goes hand in hand with, with knowing who you are mm -hmm. um, and not re really representing something different on the outside from what's on the inside. And I've spent the last 31 years trying to figure out, you know, how to make those two match. And now that i 31, I kind of think I'm there. And so I would <laughs> not be quick to abandon that or shed that. And also I spend most of my life playing other people, so it would be weird to spend even more of my life playing other people. That's interesting. Well, and Michelle Williams, this is the easiest name for me to pronounce I've encountered in, in months. So I'm happy you kept your name. Uh, well, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, there were some ideas early on that I should change it, but they all made me sound like a porn star. So I was like, mm, I don't think I'll be Michelle Montana, but thank you. <laughs> That's right. You're from Montana, right? And isn't, uh, that, yes. and isn't that how the porn star name game works? You kind of... Uh, oh, yeah. That is how you... Yeah, in your first dog or something. And I think your middle yeah. name goes in there too. I think so my porn star name would be <laughs> Doxy Francis Princeton. That sounds kind of good. I'd Doxy run a movie Francis with him in it. Princeton. Actually probably not. <laughs> <laughs> What's something you learned about Marilyn Monroe that most people don't know? Um when she was married to Arthur Miller, um he had children so she had stepchildren and when they were at summer camp she would write to them as the family dog. 
and <laughs> in the voice of the family dog, tell them, you know, about the slippers that he had been chewing and how naughty he had been and how much he looked <laughs> forward to their return. And, you know, that's a kooky thing to do. She was kooky. Yeah. Uh, and that, I don't know, that really tickled me more than anything was... How much vitality? Yeah, it, it, the vitality is a great. Is that an adjective? <laughs> but that's a, it's a great word to describe that. Sort of, it indicates a vulnerability, but also an intelligence around. Yeah, it's like a real sign of life. Yeah, you know, it's not just happy birthday, Mr. President. Yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not. Which is the intoxicating dream of Marilyn Monroe? That you know, could a creature have walked this earth who existed purely to make us happy and to give us pleasure? Is that possible? And the answer is. No. <laughs> oh, no, really? No, I'm sorry. She was just a girl. Um, is it true <laughs> that you remained in character Offset? Offset? No, not when I go home. I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't do <laughs> I mean, that. My friends and family would not allow <laughs> such a thing. Um, you, never in a way that could be destructive. Or I mean, I've sort of said before, like, I like to read my kid. If I'm working on something, you know, her bedtime stories will sort of take on a flavor of something that I'm experimenting with. But she's gotten to the point where she's sort of hip to it. And she's like, uh-uh, not the, not the, she calls her Mara Moreau. She's <laughs> like, not the Mara Moreau voice. So that must have been tough when you were shooting Meek's Cutoff, when you were playing a, a 19th century settler facing death. <laughs> we were, um, you know, we called it our little house on the prairie work. <laughs> All right, well, we have another standard question we ask our guest. And that is, tell us something we don't know, either about you or it could be a fact about the world at large. I learned a new word that I really like. Oh, yeah? What's that? I subscribe to this, um, the OED online. Yeah. And I get a word a day. The The last word that I got and saved was um, mellifluous, which means yielding or producing honey. And probably most people didn't know that. I, I absolutely didn't know that. And I didn't even know they needed a word for it because I thought, oh, don't only bee, bees are the only things that do that, right? You know... When you think about it for a little longer, mm-hmm. other um, ways to integrate that word might pop into your head. Michelle Williams. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, a great adjective. Very Marilyn Monroe of you to bring it up. <laughs> so, Rico, after that interview, yeah. my word of the day was... <laughs> Enchanted. (laughs) (laughs) And my word is blushing. (laughs) Yeah, that was my word too. A little real. Folks, if you have words for us, you can put them in your computer and electronically mail them. We'd love to receive them. Nice words especially. Nice words especially. You can reach us at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. eavesdrop. This week, the online literary magazine McSweeney's Internet Tendency published a satirical piece from writer Shirako Dunlap. It's called Literary Genre Translations. Today, we overhear Shirako reading a dinner party-worthy excerpt. Hi, my name is Shirako Dunlap. This is a satirical piece in which I take one simple sentence and I translate it to various genres. Here's the original text. I ate a sandwich and looked out the window. Here's the sci-fi version. I placed the allotted nutrition capsules on my tongue bed and looked to the Naheen VI-8373 space pothole. This is the fantasy version. My dragon, Ralph Arus, and I, Genflo Fla'i, 
choked down the hardened cheese curd and two-part moons old bread as we peered out of the meeting cavern. This is the beatnik version of the sentence, I ate a sandwich and looked out the window. I, me, you, we, he, she, ate a yum-yum, grub-em-up, smorgasboarding. It's like breathing. Take a man out of fish. You can fish. We all are fish. Where's that fish? The man looks at us like fish through his crystal window, and we, we, look back. This is the choose-your-own-adventure version. You eat a sandwich. You are then compelled to do something, so you look out the window and reflect. Turn to page 65. Walk outside into a dark cave with piranhas and snakes? Turn to page 27. Drink from a bottle marked poison and take a nap? Turn to page 27. The 19th century British romance version. Being but a governess with no prospects but a fierce wit and a quick temper which is out of mode, I nibbled a soda biscuit and looked off into the glade, awaiting my dear friend, whom I surely could not come to love, Mr. Wadsworthyton. This is the drama version of the sentence, I ate a sandwich and looked out the window. Rich. Thanks for the sandwich, Dad. Don't think it makes up for all the boozing and you walking out on me and Mom and Baby Boone and Old Lady Glipper and all the beatings with the belt and the stick and the rusty rake and the vacuum cleaner and the Swiffer and the hourglass and the brass pocket watch. Rich looks out the broken window. And this is the magic realism version of the sentence, I ate a sandwich and looked out the window. I ate a sandwich and then flew into the air vent. Writer Shirako Dunlap reading from her piece, Literary Genre Translations. It was published this week on McSweeney's Internet Tendency. And you are listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. Or translated into the romance genre from American Smoldering Passion. So we've heard from our guest of honor, eavesdropped on an author. Now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we learn about the best part of a dinner party, the food. Yes, and Brendan, you may have heard me speak fondly once or twice about my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Once or right? twice million times, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I can be over-enthusiastic about a town I abandoned 16 years ago, I admit yeah. this. But <laughs> something even I never expected to say was that Pittsburgh apparently has the best vodka in the world. What? Yes. I think they can only say that because the world won't go to Pittsburgh <laughs> to argue with them. Is, <laughs> so they can just say whatever they want. Their loss. <laughs> no, there's a magazine called The Spirits Journal. It accepts no advertising. It's kind of the consumer reports of booze. And this year, the Pittsburgh-made brand Boyd & Blair was the highest-ranking vodka on their list of the top five-star spirits on earth. I dare you to say that after drinking a glass of it. I could not do so. <laughs> so I paid a visit to their distillery in Pittsburgh to learn about vodka from a couple of my homies. My name is Prentice Orr, and I'm a partner at, in uh, Pennsylvania Pure Distilleries, which is the formal name of the company. I am Barry Young, uh, co-owner and distiller. All right. The first thing that I have to ask is, you were recently named one of the best vodkas in the world. In Pittsburgh? As a Pittsburgher, I found... I think of this as a beer town. How the hell did that happen? I think that we came into the spirits industry unexperienced, and we just went around making a spirit the way we would cook a meal, using local ingredients, doing everything by hand, for, by scratch, um, not buying anything pre-made. We do everything you know, from the potatoes uh, to bottling by hand. 
Now, you, me- you mentioned potatoes. This is a potato vodka. I do not claim to know a, a ton about the process of making vodka or really any spirit. Is that particularly unusual? Well, the, the potato is historically from Poland. Vodka from Russia was always grain. Potato has more of a sweetness to it. It has more character than a grain, uh, but it's more expensive. You know, potatoes are more expensive. They're harder to, to work. You got to convert everything from starch to sugars. It's a tougher way to make a spirit, but at the end, it has flavor. So is the majority of the stuff that I'll buy at the liquor store grain alcohol, you know, absolute and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, you know, the vast majority of what you would buy that's on the bottom shelf uh, would be the corn. I don't, I don't ever even look at that stuff. No, well, you shouldn't look at that stuff. Your, your eyes should be about mid-level to high on the shelf. Um, the Stolies, the Absolutes, the Great Gooses, those are all made with wheat. It's far and few between that you see a potato vodka. All right. Now, what makes vodka vodka as opposed to any other clear spirit, you know, gin or something like that? The real definition by the federal government is that you have to reach 95% alcohol and distillation. The government regulates what is vodka? That's a a fun job for some government bureaucrat. The government strictly regulates what you can call vodka, what you can call bourbon. Vodka has to be unaged, never touches a barrel, and it has to reach uh, at least 95% alcohol and distillation. So you only have 5% water or other characteristics left. You have this new spirit that is even higher alcohol content. Yeah, we have um, professional proof 151, which so it's almost double the regular proof. Sold. Uh, Yes. So it is not meant as a, uh, a mixing vodka. It's meant to be the base for house-made liqueurs. Um, there's a great trend around the country where mixologists are making their own bitters. One of the things, in addition to bitters, that I've, I understand is that you can actually make gin out of this stuff? Like at home, you have a recipe for making gin out of your vodka? Well, I like to call it gin essence, taking the 151 and adding juniper berries and all the other ingredients and just infusing them. And is this literally something you can do at home that I don't need sort of like an open flame still, you know, that's cranking out horrible smells or anything? Yeah, you can easily uh, make any kind of infusion at home. You can put cooked pumpkin in it with uh, spices, let it sit for just a couple of days, strain it through a uh, coffee filter. You know, you can do it with blue cheese. You can do it with... What? I can infuse it with blue cheese? Is that a good idea? It's a great idea. But I mean, but you'd actually... Oh my God. So (laughs) I'm being shown a mason jar full of what I'm assuming is your vodka with blue cheese sort of clouding the mixture. It's just sitting in there. All you need is a mason jar, blue cheese, and then we run it through a coffee filter at the end. Makes a beautiful dirty every time. All right. I, I have my doubts, but I guess I'm going to try this. By the way, I should note that it's about 11 a.m. <laughs> and I'm about to sip blue cheese vodka. At least there's some nourishment in it. Well, of course. All right. That is so good and so <laughs> unusual. I've never, it's like creamy. It's a little, it becomes more like a liqueur almost. Now, if you take that and just put it, you know, a couple of olives stuffed with blue cheese in it, you're set. Man, it's, it is really good. So everything is old school. All our equipment is handmade, done the old-fashioned way by steam. I mean, the only way we get a more old-fashioned is if we had wood underneath it, heating it. This is like a steampunk vodka, actually. Yeah. Actually, can I see that just to look sure, at sure. it? Um, all right, so we're, wow. Oh, wow. It is really steampunk looking. This is a, like a giant brass column that's probably, I don't know, 20 feet tall or something, maybe 10, 15. 34 feet tall. It really looks like something out of Jules Verne. There's like dials and sort of like portholes. Uh, this is the final tank where we collect the final product. Actually, there's some in here. You want to put your head in there? I'm now putting my head into a giant tub of 
Oh, wow, very strong spirit. Whew. About 191 proof alcohol sitting in here, and there's just roughly 300 liters. I feel like I just got a little drunk, and I'm really not kidding. Is it, it was, would it be possible to get drunk just inhaling that? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so either. I don't think so, but uh, you're welcome to try. <laughs> so, all right, Rico, did you try? I did not attempt inebriation via inhalation, <laughs> no. It actually kind of hurt to breathe it a little, and if you <laughs> if you tossed in a match, you could probably blow up the city, actually. So it's great in martinis or Molotov cocktails. Mm. <laughs> I can vouch for the martini part. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to take a little break. Coming up, a scholar of gossip shows us how it's done. I, I bet you can't tell me with whom Fidel Castro's sleeping. Whoever it is, they better like cigar smoke. <laughs> All that when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, The New Yorker's classical music critic is here to discuss Iranian tunes and wedding singers. Interesting. It, it is. Yeah. <laughs> and later, the Jizza drops some science on us. Ooh. How, mu- how much does science weigh? Exactly. You know, maybe he'll know. You can ask him. I will do so. <laughs> but first, it's time for our weekly etiquette segment in which someone of note answers our listeners' questions about how to behave. And this week, we are joined by Joseph Epstein. He is the author of the new book, Gossip, The Untrivial Pursuit. It comes out this week. Joseph, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. But let me ask you straight off. Have you ever had any guests for your show that said, you know, I'm a vegan. I hope you've taken care of this. <laughs> We've had vegans not on the show. We, we accommodate vegans. It's good. That's right. So are you a vegan? <laughs> no, I'm not. Oh, okay. I'm a, a vicious carnivore. Oh, well, then let's <laughs> gossip about vegans for yeah. a while. They are just they are such so a problem. Demanding. I have such problems with I them. I know this one vegan. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, look, you're known for your kind of uh, erudite and witty takes on social situations. You've written about ambition, friendship snobbery, envy, all forces that shape dinner parties. That's true. I hadn't thought of that till you just said it at that moment. Right. And now your new book is about gossip, so you've now hit all the dinner party building blocks. I know. When, you know, when I recall, was first told I'd be uh, coming to dinner with you guys, uh, the first thought I had is different people bring different things when they're uh, dinner guests. You know, you might bring a good bottle of wine, flowers, but I think you can also bring gossip. Mm. And it may be the best gift of all. Well, that's interesting. That's actually our first listener question. Mm-hmm. Uh, Austin in Fort Worth asks, why does gossip feel so good? Yeah, I think it feels good for two reasons. Uh, number one, it brings a kind of intimacy about between the person telling it and the person's receiving it. Uh, that's number one. Number two is receiving gossip, if it's believable and interesting gossip, makes one feel like an insider. Mm-hmm. And that's always a great comfort. A little bit of a mob mentality, in a way. Absolutely. So, Austin and Fort Worth, that's why it feels so good. <laughs> you remember the mental mob. Does that justify it maybe a little bit? It's kind of, those are nice things to feel. Well, you know, it's justified if it's, if it's artfully and amusingly told, and if it's not vicious. You know, the, the old idea of gossip is that it's, it's vicious. It's meant to, uh, it goes to reputation, it's meant to destroy people, and there's others that is uh, just delightful. I'll give you a very quick example. I had a friend, I mentioned this in my book, John Gross. He was the editor of the Times Literary Supplement. Uh And I would occasionally get calls from John that might begin like this. Uh, Joe, uh, John Gross here. Uh, Joe, 
I, I bet you can't tell me with whom Fidel Castro's sleeping. <laughs> you know, and, and then he'd put me through this whole business, I'd have to say, Indira Gandhi, you know, <laughs> Goldemar, yeah. Mrs. Thatcher, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, that's delightful, unless you're worried about Fidel Castro's <laughs> reputation. The president of Cuba probably isn't going to be destroyed by two Western guys joking on the phone. No, I don't think he is either. The two things you have to do when you're presented with a piece of gossip, it seems to me, is you have to ask, is it true? And then the second question is, what is the motive of the person who just told it to me? You know, is the motive viciousness? Is the motive entertainment? And you have to somehow work with those two factors to, to get at the truth quotient and the purity of the gossip. So it sounds like, does gossip have to have a negative side, or is it just that it has to be something that people don't want other people to know? Yeah. Well, that you know, that's the root definition. It's, it's in its fundamental sense, is two or three people sitting in a room talking about a person who's not in the room, <laughs> usually talking about some weakness, uh, moral or, or social or comic about that person, something he doesn't want known. Hmm. Let's talk about our producer, Jackson, who has been uh, <laughs> driving a car way beyond his means. And, and let us, let's not forget those shoes he's wearing. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. He's not in the room. He's listening to this conversation right now, but since he's not in the room. Yeah. Uh, here's another sort of gossip-themed question. This is Kate in Vermont. She writes, I would like to know some incognito ways to get the juice on whatever, whoever the case may be, only without sounding like gossip is on the agenda. Uh, Are there ways we can casually open a conversation and keep it going without it looking like I'm trolling for gossipy details? So uh, she's basically asking you to instruct her. Yes. No, I don't have a 12-step program for doing this. But one of the things in my book is toward the end, I have something called Great Gossips of the Western World. And one of the gossips is Tina Brown, who is the editor of Vanity Fair. Of course. And now runs the Daily Beast online. And part of the genius of Tina Brown as a journalist is she has gone to some lengths to make gossip seem untacky. You know, to make it seem like, of course every bright person wants to know uh, Mel Gibson uh, doesn't wear underwear or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> is that true? Oh, I my goodness. I just made that up. I have no idea. I hope he does wear underwear, actually. <laughs> the other thing, you know, this, this goes to the point of etiquette at dinner. I think you have to be very careful of whether your gossip will uh, wound somebody at the table. Gossip it was once formulated thus, something you like about someone you don't like. Mm-hmm. So, for example... If the table's liberal, some talking about John F. Kennedy may not be such a hot idea. And uh, the other way around, if it's mostly conservatives, they don't want to hear Nancy Reagan's stories. <laughs> did you hear about her and Fidel Castro? <laughs> I, <laughs> I did not hear that. We'll talk about that off air. <laughs> so, so bottom line, you, do, you don't have uh, advice for Kate on <laughs> how to be a gossip, advice. but be careful when you're dispersing gossip. Yes, just be careful and hang in there, kid. All right, so we have, I think, one last question. It's usually, what's the most memorable get-together you've ever been to? But Mm. in your case, do Mm -hmm. you have any stories about gossip at a dinner party? What's your favorite example thereof? Well, I I have a number of them. One of them is a a story about Elizabeth Taylor, who was supposed to marry a a very boring journalist uh, named Max Lerner. Okay. And two women meet, and uh, one says to the other, did you hear the gossip that Elizabeth Taylor is marrying Max Lerner? And the other woman says, Max Lerner, I mean, he's the most boring man, writer alive. Uh, and he says, he's a very homely, gremlin-looking little man. Uh, she, Elizabeth Taylor's going to marry Max Lerner? And the other woman says, well, you know, I suppose I'd rather sleep with him than read him. 
<laughs> that, that has always seemed to me the ultimate literary criticism. <laughs> I'd rather sleep with him than read him. So. Well, the, the ultimate literary uh, exploration of gossip is uh, a new book called Gossip, the Untrivial Pursuit. It is uh, written by Joseph Epstein. And thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Before you go, I have one thing I want to tell you about off air. Good. I, I have something to tell you about Rico. And I've got so much to tell you about Brendan, but I'll send it in an email. Uh, thanks so much. I'll just set my napkin down here and take off quietly. Being nice and having manners, these are things that we all should know. I hope that you have learned some manners. Thank you now and you may go. And dinner partiers, if you have etiquette questions, send them to us. We promise we'll find someone nominally qualified to answer them. So, yes, stop for a moment and think about it. Hmm. Surely there's something you're doing wrong, or at least feel guilty about it, or maybe that's just me. Probably. Send us your questions, and we'll broadcast your name and your misbehavior to everyone in the entire world. Actually, it's just our audience, so like the whole world minus North Korea. That's true. You can send your questions to us via dinnerpartydownload.org. Head there and look for the section that says, Do Our Work For Us. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we talk to someone who knows something that we don't. This week, our teacher is Alex Ross. He's the classical music critic for The New Yorker. He's also an award-winning author, and he edited the new book, the just-released Best Music Writing of 2011. Alex, um, this book is basically a compendium of the Best Music Writing of 2011. I was wondering if you could share with us a few of the things that really captivated you while you were putting this together. Yeah, one piece that really jumped out at me, uh, just the, the instant I started reading it, was a piece by uh, Murad Mansouri about the underground music scene in Iran. It covers a, a lot of different uh, aspects of that scene, from American hip-hop kind of uh, entering in and uh, seizing hold of the you know, imagination of young people, to, uh, and this this really interested me most, fusions of the ancient Persian musical traditions with, you know, Bob Dylan-style uh, protest songs and, you know, immediately you know, went on the internet and found uh, some of these uh, songs by artists like uh, Mohsen Namju, and it's amazing music. So it does sound something like a sort of a you know guitar sort of protest uh, song of the 1960s, but of course the vocal delivery and, and the language uh, are, are completely different. The text comes from Hafez, the great Iranian uh, classical poet, and I think you know it's important, you know, not to tell this story as a kind of triumphal narrative of American popular culture conquering all, because there is an underside to that. First this, and then possibly Miley Cyrus. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> okay, so what's what's something else that you can teach us here? Something much more offbeat, a piece by Lauren Wilcox-Pakowski uh, about a D.C. area wedding singer named Kenny Holmes. This guy is an African-American guy sort of you know, moving through the world of upper echelon D.C. area weddings. There's this, this great moment where the uh, bride and groom come over to thank him for you know, putting on a sort of successful show. And, and one of them says, when you got my dad on the dance floor, you've got a friend in the D.C. Court of Appeals. It's <laughs> a sort of amazing line. Because his father was a judge? Or... Yeah, yeah. So, so this is the kind of world that he's, that he's moving in. 
there's actually another uh, layer to it, kind of you know, a serious point that, that he starts to make about the decline of this business of playing music at weddings. I mean, there, there's so many just working players out there who are now facing serious competition from pre-recorded music. From like iPods and nephews with, with turntables. Yeah, I mean, someone shows up at a, at a wedding with their playlist, you know, on their iPod, and, you know, that's going to be the music. And so he, he talks about how it's just getting harder for him to make a living. And, and he talks about how there's a spontaneity and a sort of a, a you know a sense of an event that can build with live musicians and if it's someone just plugging in their iPod you know you can't tell the bass player to kick it you know I, I empathize with Kenny Holmes because I, I don't even like pumping my own gas I hate checking out my own items and I've been to weddings now where they tell you to bring a playlist it's like come on here oh absolutely yeah all right well bail out for the wedding singers of the country is there another thing that kind of grabbed your attention well, I think I'll sort of lapse back into my classical home territory for uh, one more pick, which is uh, the pianist Jeremy Dink, uh, who's actually also uh, an amazing writer and has had a, a blog which has become a cult phenomenon in uh, the classical world. Wait, there are cult phenomena blogs in the classical world? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, he actually doesn't write that often, but when he does, sort of everyone pays attention because, you know, first of all, it's just so revealing and something very, very honest. Uh, he's an excellent pianist. He's really one of the leading American uh, pianists of his uh, generation. And he's just one of the best music writers out there that, that I know. And the piece that I included in the book is one in which he sort of goes to town a little bit uh, attacking program notes. And program notes, these are the, the brochures or given to you as you enter a, a concert. Yeah, so, I mean, just, and picture someone, you know, all right, 25 years old, sort of, all right, I'm going to give it a chance on a sort of classical concert, haven't really ever been to one or not since I was in school. And then you, you, you know, your first impression before the music starts is to pick up this little booklet uh, and, and start reading these notes. And, and Jeremy's point is these notes are often colossally boring, uh, formulaic, uh, dry. It's like reading a side of a cereal box or something. Yeah, and, it's, and there are a lot of exceptions out there. You know, he talks about, he was playing the Beethoven first piano concerto in, in several different places and noticed that the program notes always began with the same not very engaging point about the piece, which is the first piano concerto was actually written second, and the second concerto was written first. And that's, that, that's, is that really where we want to begin with a discussion of what this piece means in the, in the early 21st century? And, and it's, it sort of makes you stop and think... This is important. You know, I mean, we think of this, you know, the program notes don't matter so much, but I think especially for those first-time listeners, it's it's really quite crucial. I think you might overestimate your audience. I mean, I think the fact that the first was second and the second first is pretty cool. Well, you should mention that at some point, but that just does, it doesn't need to be, you know, the lead. So, Brendan, question, why don't they have program notes at rock concerts? You know, yeah. it's true, but isn't that what Tumblr and, like, the entire internet is, basically? <laughs> <laughs> it can seem that way, can it? Yeah. Uh, all right, so listeners, right now we're going to need you all to fasten your seatbelts, sit down, hold on to something stable like your pet. Wait uh, a second, are we going to have an uncomfortable talk here? Because <laughs> Michelle Williams already told me about the birds and the bees. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm bracing everyone so they don't get cultural whiplash. 
when we introduce our next guest, rap hero, the Jizza. Ow. <laughs> I told you. <laughs> the Jizza, a.k.a. the genius, is the rapper, wordsmith, at the core of the iconic group Wu-Tang Clan. And this week he gave a lecture at Harvard. He spoke about music and creativity. That's right up his alley. But he also integrated science into his talks because it turns out he is an avid physics student. And while at Cambridge, he toured Harvard's Broad Science Institute and MIT. Yes. Now, as a Bachelor of the Arts, whose knowledge of science ends at the fermentation of grapes, <laughs> I am fascinated by people who dig science. Yeah. So I caught up with the genius, and I asked him, What's the allure of studying science? You're learning something new every day. And the more I've learned, the more I realize everything is connected in the universe. Every single thing is connected or has some sort of link. Mm -hmm. All the elements that's in the sun exist within the body and, you know, we're composed of stardust, literally. Because I, when I was a kid, I, this is a true story, I actually, the last science class I took was in high school, and I took environmental science because it was really easy and I could cut class. And I listened to the Wu-Tang Clan. So you've actually helped curb my science education. I did a lot of cutting, things of that nature. And um, <laughs> I think as an adult, I became more interested. Yeah. Well, you spoke generally about how everything's connected. What's something else that you learned or that you tell your friends that kind of blows their mind? That if you remove all empty space from an atom, you can put the world's population into something the size of a sugar cube. That's mind-boggling. Yeah. <laughs> How do, could you kind of unpack that for me? I'm not sure I understand. A large amount of what we know is empty space. So if you t took all the emptiness from an atom and you compressed everything, then you would be able to put all of us into something so small. Like some giant from another universe could then just carry us around yeah. and drop us in their coffee. Exactly. Is there a song of yours or a lyric of yours that is related to science that you could maybe share with us? Yes, quite a few. Um... One of them would be, it's called Legend of the Liquid Swords. All right, from your first album. You know, it's kind of relevant to the universe. You know, the second verse, I, I have a line where I say, My universe runs like clockworks forever. Words pull together, sudden change in the weather. The nature and the scale of events don't make sense. A storm with no one in, you're drawn in by immense gravity that's going mad. Clouds of dust and debris moving at colossal speeds, they're crushing MC. Since this rap region is heavily packed with stars, internal mirror in the telescope, notice the gods. From far away, we blink as a light stroll. Great distance of space between precise globes. And that's just one out of few. Legend of the Liquid Swords from Jizza of his album of the same name. He is a member of the Wu-Tang Clan, and this week he was a guest lecturer at Harvard. You know, this may incite a rap war amongst the Ivy League, Rico. I, you know, I hope Yale's, so. <laughs> Yale's going to try to book RZA. Yeah. Columbia will invite Kanye. Only good can come of this. Professor Jay-Z. Can't wait. <laughs> That's the dinner party for this week. Jackson Musker is our assistant producer. Thanks to Brendan Willard, Chris Clark, Peter Clowney, Ellen Gettler, Craig Curtis, Tracy Samuelson, and Eve Trow. And this week, we are tickled pink to welcome listeners from my hometown station, ah, WHYY yes. in Philadelphia, where, Rico, I had my first job. I was a oh. research assistant for Terry Gross. I've heard of her. Oh, you have? <laughs> yes. So I'm <laughs> assuming your research showed that you wanted your own show. Exactly. Congrats.